0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. I call your attention this evening to 2 Timothy chapter three, verses fifteen through seventeen. As you're turning there, I just want to—I'll give you a quick update on—on uh, on, uh, we are praying this morning for uh, little Georgia Burton, and uh, uh, Nancy got word that she is already be improving. So we praise the Lord for that. Keep praying for her. Uh, remember, this is uh, Shelby's uh, daughter, and four months old, hospitalized at Blair Batson with uh, uh, low oxygen levels. All right, Second Timothy chapter three, verses fifteen through. Uh, let's start, start at verse fourteen. Uh, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How can a young man keep his way pure? Amen, please be seated as I was um, as I was preparing for uh, this sermon on the su- sufficiency of scripture i I thought about a, a moment uh, when I was in seminary, and we had a campus pastor whose name was Tom Ellis, and Pastor Ellis was a very dear man, and there was uh, right before I had to deliver my senior sermon, I I bought a myself a really nice Bible, and you know that when you buy an, a new Bible, uh, if it has the gilding on the edges, those pages will will stick. It's really easy to tell somebody's got a new Bible, you know, after Christmas or whatever, because they walk in and it it just shines. I mean, it's just it's shiny. And so I'm standing there, and, and I'm talking to Pastor Ellis, and I'm getting ready to go in and give my senior sermon. And he looked down at my at my Bible, and um, <clears throat> he said, "Is that your Bible?" And I said, "Well, yes, sir." He said, "It looks rather unused." <laughs> <laughs> and he was he he was he was being honest. He was questioning me, and I really appreciated that. Um, because he was concerned that I was about how engaged I was in studying the Word and being a man of the Word. And, and as I thought about that, it reminded me of uh, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. You've probably heard this before, never seen it on any of the church signs, of course, but Spurgeon is quoted as having said, there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. And... Um, I think Pastor Ellis probably had that in mind as he was challenging me about my own use of my Bible. I said, no, it's new. (laughs) We believe in the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, and we've talked about that over the past few weeks. The inspiration and the authority of Scripture, what a gift, As, as Pastor Danny was praying and Just marveling at the fact that we can bring our prayers to the living God and He hears every one of them and cares about every single request that we make. What a gift. What a gift as well that God has given us His Word. And just think about over the thousands of years how He has caused men to write His words down thinking of you. Thinking of that time that you would maybe sit at your dining table with your cup of coffee as a husband and wife or whatever your Uh, whatever your practice is, he was thinking of you and you reading that word and him speaking to you in those moments. We also believe that God's word is sufficient. And this is something that I hope you've resolved in your own soul and that you find comfort in, that God's word is sufficient for you. Um, Some of you have probably... Uh, at least as long as Amazon has been around, you've probably brought, bought some, some electronic device from Amazon and it was shipped directly to you from China. And you open up this complicated electronic device and it's got a four by four card in there with all the instructions that you uh, need for that. A piece of uh, electronic that's totally indecipherable. It says something like to turn on press once button." And so you throw the instructions away and you just go about trying to figure out how to use this device on your own. Is God's word that way? I'm glad you say no. Does it get us some of the way? Is it only good for handling certain parts of the Christian life? But we're really modern people, okay? We have nice shoes. We don't wear sandals anymore. Um... This is a really old book. Let's face it. Is it just for church stuff? Good, I think we're on the right page. No, uh, what we want to understand by the sufficiency of God's Word in really simple terms is this. That God's Word is a complete instruction teaching you how to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That is what the Word of God is for us today, and we'll, we'll look, about, look at this in three different points. First of all, let's notice, that, uh, let's notice what God gives us in His Word. What does God give us in His Word? And I'm basing this entirely on what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, so we want to walk through it in that way. And the first thing that we learn is that God's Word gives us all things necessary for glorifying Him for faith and for life. So let's think about that just for a second. Go back with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let's notice the exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy. That as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, Timothy had been taught by his, his mother and his grandmother from a very young age. They brought him up in the Old Testament, reading it to him, uh, probably on a daily basis, making sure that he memorized uh, certain parts of the Bible. And here Paul is telling him, don't forget that. In verse 15 he says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in a sense, notice that Paul tells Timothy, what you have learned from childhood is all that you need to know to live for the glory of God. And that's the first thing we notice in in terms of what God gives us in his word, is that he gives us all things necessary to live for his glory. Now, can you imagine understanding as you do how concerned God is for his glory and the majesty of his son that he would give you a four by four card that says, Look to Jesus when the going gets rough, and that be it? No. What God has given you because he is preeminently concerned for his own glory is a sufficient instruction to teach you how to glorify Him. One of the reasons that we read the psalms and sing the psalms is because they express the Christian emotion in every phase of life. Are you sick? Look to the psalms. Are you struggling? Look to the psalms. Are you sad? Look to the psalms. Are you glad? Look to the psalms. God has given us all that we need throughout His Word, to glorify him in every phase of life. But first of all, as we begin in Genesis and we end in Revelation chapter 22, what is the central theme of the Bible? Well, if you say Jesus Christ, you are correct. When you go and read about David and Goliath, That's not about you in David's shoes facing your Goliath. It is primarily pointing you to the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, when he journeyed on the Emmaus Road with the disciples, he showed them how every part of Scripture pointed to him. And so then we have the law and the prophets and the poets, and then we have uh, the Gospels teaching us about the work and the word of Christ. And then finally, Uh, The disciples who are uh, the apostles who are explaining all of the life of Christ and what he did for us. He is teaching us how to glorify him. But he's also teaching us how to be saved. He's also teaching us how to be saved or how to trust him. What is the first aspect of glorifying God? Well, it is believing upon him, isn't it? It is putting your faith in Him. It is fearing Him. Remember, it is impossible to please God apart from faith. And so the Scriptures teach you how to trust God. They teach you who He is so that you can trust Him properly. They teach you about His power and about His promises, about His unchanging character, so that you may trust Him properly. And then thirdly, we learn how to glorify Him, how to trust Him, and then I think, thirdly, uh, about life or about obeying Him. Uh, turn over with me to Psalm chapter 1. I know you probably don't need to turn there, but let's, let's do that anyway. Remember that God commanded Joshua to meditate on his word day and night. And here in the final section of the Old Testament, in Psalm chapter 1, we read this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now that, that requires something of me. It requires that I am able to discern wicked counsel from godly counsel nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water who bears, uh, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Do you see what the promise there, um, the majesty of the promise That if the man who meditates on the law of God, who is repeating it to himself, who is taking it in deeply, is like a tree drinking in water and bearing fruit in every season. This is the sufficiency, not of that man, but of the law in which he is rooted. The Bible teaches us how to obey God. And we we can consider the application of the law. That law forms a complete ethical code for the Christian. It doesn't just tell us what God prohibits. It also tells us what God promotes in the positive aspects of the Christian life. When I go to the supermarket, I can meditate on the, especially the second table of the law. How do I love my neighbor when I go to Aldi and all the places to check out are filled? What do I do? The Bible gives us a commission in how to love God and how to love our neighbor. So Scripture primarily gives us how to glorify God by believing in Him and trusting in Him for salvation. And then thirdly, um, how to live for His glory, to live in obedience to God in all situations. And secondly, notice with me how we learn from God. This is what... uh, Uh, the Westminster Confession gets into, uh, uh, secondly, is how we learn uh, from God's Word. And it tells us that the Bible sets down instructions for us in two ways. One of those ways I know that you're familiar with, it expressly sets certain things down, doesn't it? So when we go to the Ten Commandments, we read, thou shalt not murder. I understand what that means, I don't really need a lot of extra explanation as to what murder means. Some aspects of the Bible's instruction are totally clear. But, if the gilding has worn off of the pages of your Bible, and you've been reading it for a while, you understand that some things in the Scriptures are not entirely clear, are they? Some things are a bit difficult to understand, and we're going to look at that ex- explicitly next week. But the Bible sets down some of our instructions in what uh, the Westminster Confession calls good and necessary consequence. Well, what in the world does that mean? What is a good and necessary consequence? Well, there are some aspects of Christian doctrine that the Bible sets down by comparing verse with verse passage with passage let me give you a couple of examples can you think of a passage in the bible where we would go and learn that god is a trinity can you think of a passage in scripture where it expressly says to you god is three persons in one being and one being in three persons They are co-eternal and co-equal. Can you think of one passage of Scripture where you would find that? And the answer is no. We understand who God is as a triune being by looking at the whole testimony of the Scriptures. Look back at your bulletin with me just for a second at question number 11. How do we know that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? Well, there are a few ways. When we read the scriptures and when it talks about Jesus, it it uses the name of God. Do you think about in John's gospel, seven times he says what? I am. Well, that's a direct reference to the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. So the names of God are attributed to the Son and the Spirit. And we also see the attributes of God. We see that Christ knows all. He has divi- a divine nature. He has mastery over nature, which only God can have. The Spirit likewise hovering over the waters and brings life and order to the creation. His works and His worships, worship as are proper to God only. This is what we mean by good and necessary consequence. What are we doing? We're looking at the whole scope of the Bible And we're seeing everything that it says about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and we conclude these are three distinct persons who are one God. That's what we mean by good and necessary consequence. This is a proper use of the Bible, because remember, it's not an instruction book. It wasn't written in some Chinese factory where they're trying to translate this into adequate human language. I want to give you just an example of how Christ used this. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 32. Jesus is answering uh, the Sadducees here, and they are questioning him with reference to the resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. Once you die, that's it. And so they said, well, there is no resurrection. And remember, they said, well, if a man dies, if a woman dies, and she'd been married to seven men in her lifetime, when she goes to heaven, who's she going to be married to? And boy, they were proud. They thought they had had him wrapped around the axle right there. And Jesus responds to them and, and answers their question. In verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And he gets to the the heart of the question here. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, excuse me. Do you know what he's citing there? He's citing Exodus chapter three where God is giving Moses his name. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. It has nothing to do with the resurrection. But you see, Jesus looks at that verse and he deductively reasons and he says, here's what we can pull from that. If God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, they must still be living because he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, and so Jesus uses that verse... And he reasons from it and draws a conclusion that has a reference to the resurrection. He goes on, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. So some things are set down in the Bible for us, and they are exquisitely clear. So clear that if anybody disagrees with it, you say, well, you just can't read well. But in other cases, it is just as applicable to put verses together and develop, do you see, a framework of theology from the whole testimony of the Bible. This is good and necessary consequence. And the confession goes on and it says, it gives us kind of a warning. It says, to this, nothing is to be added. Remember this morning we read from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and Moses had some very important instruction for the Israelites. With reference to God's word, he said, don't do either of two things. Don't add to it, and don't take away from it. And if we are not very, very careful, we can add to God's word. Sometimes in in, in, in ways that we don't even realize, we are loading people's consciences with things that the Bible doesn't require them to do, or we're taking away from Scripture. So, oh, that's okay, don't worry about that. We want to be very, very careful about the way we treat God's Word, not to add to it or take away from it. Now, one of the ways that we can add to God's, God's Word is by suggesting that there's such a thing as new revelation, The confession says there are no new revelations. Why is that? Well, you might go to Revelation chapter 21 or 22 and say, well, look, it says there again, don't add to it, don't take away from it. But one of the reasons that we uh, insist that God's revelation is complete is because of this, because Christ Jesus has fully accomplished our redemption He has fully accomplished our redemption. And remember, what is the Bible teaching us? How God saves His people through the work of Jesus Christ. And if the work of Jesus Christ is complete, then His Word must be complete. If you suggest that there are new revelations, therefore, then what you are suggesting is that the redemption of Christ is not complete. And we need more. But God hasn't left you dependent on whims. I remember um, when I was in college, wrestling through some major decisions. Should I get married? Should I not get married? Should I take this career? Should I not take this career? And I sincerely believed that I needed to, almost like reading tea leaves, looking for signs in the sky. Oh, look, that sign says something about a bank job. God is speaking to me. God has not left me dependent on a Lamar advertising billboard. He has left me His Word and expects me to become a skilled craftsman working through His Word to apply it to every situation. Let me just encourage you read through the Proverbs. If if you haven't done that, start reading through the Proverbs every day, a chapter a day, and do it every day for 12 months. There are 31 chapters. I assure you that you will grow in your practical living by reading the Proverbs. There are some profound things there that you probably have not considered. God hasn't left you dependent on whims. He also hasn't left you dependent on the traditions of men. And this is where the Protestant tradition starts to come out who said, we we do away with the traditions. We respect the traditions. We respect the church fathers, but we don't hold them to the same standard of Scripture as in Roman Catholicism. And one thing that we will simply remind here is that we are not free to add instructions. Let me just tell you one practical area where this becomes very, very important. You know, God has given the church elders and deacons. And if you think about it, especially for, think about a, a, a church that has just one elder and he's the pastor. What a powerful position that might be. And you've probably known of some churches that were ruined through the misuse of church power. How do elders and deacons avoid abusing their power? One way. Understanding that the role God has given them is simply to declare His Word. That's it. I can't forbid you to do something that Scripture doesn't, and I can't command you to do something that Scripture doesn't. The the constraint upon the elder and the deacon is simply to tell you what the Bible says, and that's it. Why? Because you Ultimately and only are accountable to Jesus Christ for your obedience to His Word. You're not accountable to me. Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. He warns them (coughs) don't be gullible. Galatians 1 verse 6. What you understand then is if somebody teaches you to do something or not to do something that you are not convinced Scripture teaches you to do or not to do, your responsibility is ignore that person. Even if he's a pope or a pastor, ignore him. Christ alone is the Lord of your conscience. But we learn from Scripture using it but we also have to have the spirit's inward illumination just quickly turn over with me to first corinthians chapter two we looked at this uh, last week first corinthians chapter two beginning in verse six Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Remember what we read this morning in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have been, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us, notice here, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so the work of the Spirit in your life and mine is as we read the Scripture, and you have those moments... And we've all had this and you talk about it and you say, man, doesn't it, isn't it amazing how we read the Scriptures and we learn something it seems like every time we go when I'm intentional about that time? Well, that learning, if it is a spiritual learning, is the illumination of the Holy Spirit who's exercising the kingship of Jesus Christ over your life and leading you into the truth. We must have the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit so that we might understand the Scriptures savingly. It is the Spirit given by Christ who enables us to understand and to believe. Um, I'm always impressed. I was telling Mark and Leanne because Leanne is so gifted in her quilting. I'm always impressed by someone who can who has become a master in his craft. And if you scroll through Facebook, sometimes you'll come across videos of somebody who can, who can take just a, a block of iron and turn it into a beautiful knife. It, it's, it's amazing. Or people who are, who, who are craftsmen... Um, and they can shoe horses and that sort of thing. And they're amazing at, at what they do. Um, my, my son loves to watch Bob Ross, and I've been impressed just over time how he's been able to emulate Bob Ross's methods and paint pictures. I can't do that. This is, it, it's something that takes time and effort. And as you think about that, and, and these sorts of people quilting uh, um. Uh, genealogy or whatever your interest may be that you spend time on some guys are statisticians and they, they can remember all of these statistics from years and years and years you ought to apply yourself to god's word in that way remember what he said to timothy in 2 timothy 2 15 prove yourself a workman who needs not be ashamed how by rightly dividing the word of truth. I want to give you kind of a graphic way to understand that, rightly dividing. A related word has to do with circumcision, which requires something of precision. Um, When you handle the word of God, you want to rightly cut it. And that doesn't mean become dispensational. What that means is that you spend so much time that you're never embarrassed when Tom Ellis comes to you and says, do you use that Bible? The the pages are worn, the notes are there, and all the years that you have spent in God's Word seeking the Spirit's illumination so that you, at the end of your days, are a master workman in the Word of God. Remember what Hebrews chapter 5 says? He chastised the people there. He says, by now, you ought to be teachers. But instead, I have to come and cut the meat for you and put it in your mouth. Lastly, let's give just a quick note here on worship and government. The Bible doesn't tell us every little detail, but some circumstances are ordered by what we call the general rules uh, and Christian prudence. Look just quick, quickly with me at one. First Corinthians chapter 14. We would do well if people would just get this principle ingrained. 1 Corinthians 14.26. Paul is speaking to Christian worship here. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation you can kind of... A, Imagine a line standing right here and and everybody wants to give a, a lesson, a tongue, a hymn, an interpretation, a revelation to the church. There's nobody left out here. Everybody wants to speak. Each one has one. Let all things be done. Here's the guiding principle. For building up. It's not for you to demonstrate yourself and your giftedness it is for the building up of the body. Now turn over to verse 40. The Presbyterian life verse. But all things should be done decently and in order. We are very good at that. We require the guidance. We, you see, Scripture is still guiding us in how we conduct our worship. We do it orderly. We do it decently when it comes to the worship of God. Think about it this way. If we are going to meet together for worship, should we tell people what time to worship? Probably so. It's not going to work very well if we don't just come when the Spirit leads you to be here. It's not going to be a very good corporate worship service. Should we have a service? Should we have one service of four hours or four, four services of one hour? We need a warm and a dry place. It's not good to worship if it's uh, 20 below outside and somebody's uh, uh, going to catch uh, pneumonia while they're in God's worship. It's good for us to have a warm and dry place. We should meet at a reasonable hour. That is conducive to all people. You see, this is it, uh, what God has, has caused us to, to use Christian prudence to develop these things in an orderly and a decent fashion that is conducive to all. God has taught us how to glorify Him in all things, how to magnify Christ, how to be saved, how to live. And I'll just I will end with this. Uh, you might respond and say, well, you know, I can go to the Bible and it doesn't say anything about how the tide comes in or goes out. That might be helpful. The the Bible doesn't tell me what medicine to take if I have a headache. Boy, that would be helpful. Correct. But the Bible does tell you how to live for God's glory when you have a headache. The Bible does tell you how to be a Christian judge, homemaker, husband, father, how to be a Christian physician, It tells you how to honor God in every facet of your life. Everything is concluded so that Paul could tell Timothy so that the man of God might be complete. God's Word is a complete instruction for glorifying and enjoying Him. He has given you His Word so that you will be able to live honorably before Him in every season of life. Whether you have a migraine, a debilitating diagnosis, He tells you how to be a Christian patient. There is nothing you need to know that is not expressly set down in the Bible or that may be deduced from it by comparing passage to passage. And with the Spirit's help and constant application, Every one of us should endeavor to become a master craftsman in God's Word. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you for the precious gift that is your Word. And and I think we begin tonight praying, just confessing, oh Father, that um, we know that sometimes we don't have because we don't ask, and sometimes we don't have because we don't seek. So many things are laid out for us in Your Word that You've intended to be for the good of Your people, to preserve us, to keep us from overly stressing ourselves or for falling into to utter despair. You've given us Your Word to come along and undergird us and, and lift up our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for us, all that He's done. I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that, that You would work in us by Your Spirit, Stir us up, uh, put a fire in our belly as Pastor Danny has prayed, put a fire in our bones to study your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would meet with us there every time. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.